your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we are this morning. Several weeks ago, I issued a challenge to you. Remember it? Some of you remember what that challenge was because you took me up on it. Some of you may not remember. That challenge, very simply put, was this. Spend more time reading your Bible than you do watching the news. Remember that? Remember when I said that? It was somewhat of a passing comment, but it seems to have stuck with some of you, and I want to check up and see how that challenge is going. How are you doing on your project? How is it going? Have you tried it? And if you have, what have you noticed and what have you learned? I'm actually going to allow you to give feedback. Who's tried it? Okay, what have you learned? What have you noticed? Yeah, okay. Some have said it wasn't, <laughs> but it, it was eye-opening, yeah. Good. I thought so. <laughs> what else? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What else? I want to have, ask another question. Not not to start a controversy, not to, not to criticize anybody. And this isn't one to answer. Just think about it. For those of you that didn't try, ask yourself the question, why not? And consider this, that most of the headlines that come across our path in the news, we don't actually need to spend our time considering. You ever thought about it? Now, they won't tell you that. All right. The news won't tell you that because they're all about ratings. You understand that, right? Ratings is more important than truth. Okay. Why do we feel such an impulse to fill our minds with information we don't need at the expense of the most important thing in all the world? Just a thought. And I continue to issue that challenge. And we're going to build on that today. This is not a call for us to be uninformed. That's not what I'm saying. It is not a call for us to be unconcerned about the world that we live in. It is not a call to be disconnected from or uninvolved in society. I'm not saying that these things don't matter. My point is that much of it, most of it, can be a very easy distraction from what is most important. And it is often a discouragement. Pulling us away from what is our true hope and joy. I have never known anyone who says they have been built up in their joy and their hope and their peace and their stability by fixing their minds on current events. Have you? 
I doubt it. In fact, those things are often more of a source of distraction and discouragement than they are a help. But here's where I'm going with this. In contrast to that, when we fix our minds on the Word of God, when knowing Christ is our greatest treasure, and remember, whatever our greatest treasure is will be the greatest focus of our time, energy, effort, resources, right? When the Word of God is what we fix our minds on, when knowing Christ is our greatest treasure, when pursuing Him is the priority of our time, our energy, and our resources, then we grow in our love for Him. And He becomes more precious to us than anything this world has to say or anything this world has to offer. We begin to see the world as God sees it. And we're not shaken by its turmoil. We're not carried away by its talking points. We're not deceived by its values. And we're not distracted by its pleasures. And while we long more and more for heaven, and I hope you do, that's my prayer for you, that we would long more and more for heaven. And as we do, we also learn how to live godly lives right here and right now with our hope set on Christ alone. Don't fall for the lie that you will be too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. That's a pithy statement that a lot of people try to throw around, but it's not true. The only way you will be any true earthly good is to be truly heavenly minded in this world. So, be good citizens of your earthly kingdom, but don't get caught up in the sensationalism and anxiety of a constant preoccupation with these things. Remember, this is not our home. We are pilgrims here. We are pilgrims with a gospel mission. We are, if you will, missionary sojourners traveling to the celestial city, as Bunyan calls it, where our hearts there will find our greatest treasure. That's the heart behind this letter that Peter writes and that we are studying. Peter summarizes his purpose for the, for the book of 1 Peter in chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In other words, Peter is reminding Christians of the eternal hope. He is calling Christians to lift their eyes above their present trouble and to look to heaven where we have an eternal hope given by the grace of God himself. And with that in mind, Peter is encouraging suffering believers to stand firm in faithfulness and godliness even though the world all around us is against us and we feel more and more like strangers in a foreign land. 
You feel like a stranger in the world? You feel like you don't belong in the mainstream? One of the saddest realities in the modern day church is that many Christians, when they start to feel that way, think they have to make an adjustment to their faith in order to become more relevant, in order to become more acceptable to the world around us. The thrust of Scripture is that believers, if you feel more and more like you don't belong in the mainstream of this world, then good, because you don't. And we are meant to feel that tension. We are not meant to compromise. We are meant to remember where our true citizenship lies. And we are meant to live in this world, looking forward to that one. That's what Peter is encouraging us to. But Peter's instruction, Peter's call for us to remain steadfast and faithful, even as strangers in a foreign land, that is not a call for us to just grit our teeth and grind it out. Well, this is miserable, but I'm going to be faithful anyway. That's not the mentality of a Christian in this world either. And it is not just a a list of do's and don'ts that he is laying out for us, as if our steadfast hope is built on our own performance and our rule-keeping. That's not what Peter is getting at. As I said last week, the foundation of our hope The foundation of our stability in this world is not on what we do. It is on who we know and what we are in Him. What He has made us to be. Yes, Peter is going to spend time in this epistle talking about holiness and godly living. and He's going to give very practical instruction on what that looks like in our earthly relationships and in the details of our life, and we may get into some of that today. But all of that is not for its own sake. That is not the source of our hope. That is the the outflow of our hope. And all of that is motivated by, it is produced by, this new life that has already been given to us by God, by His grace through Christ. And so, The emphasis here, the argument that Peter is making goes something like this. As this world grows increasingly evil, and as it becomes harder to live in this world as Christians, fix your minds and fix your hearts on the grace of God that He has shown to you in Christ. And fix your minds on the eternal inheritance that you are to receive when you see Jesus face to face. And when that is your driving love, when that is your joy, then by God's grace alone, you will be able to live a steady, growing, faithful, godly, joyful, and hope-filled life in the midst of whatever this world is throwing at you. So that is the foundation that Peter has laid so far in verses 1 through 9. Today... As we look at verses 10 through 16, we're beginning to make a transition now from the foundation that he has laid to the structure of what he is building. 
in these verses, we continue to see the foundation of our salvation. We see the greatness of our salvation. But now we begin to see, yes, that salvation is great in and of itself because of what it is, where it came from, and what it has done. We'll see that in, uh, the, in verses 10 through 12. But then we're also going to see the greatness of our salvation in terms of its call on our lives. It is a great salvation with a great call upon our lives. This is where Peter transitions into practical instruction in living. On the basis of such a great salvation, on the basis of the grace and hope that has been given to us in Christ, how are we to respond? This is how we are to live in light of that grace, of that great salvation. Let's look now at the text. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. If you'll follow along as I read. Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I want us to notice, first of all, in this text, the greatness of our salvation. The greatness of our salvation. We see that in verses 10 through 12. These three verses are still closely connected to the previous verses where Peter is laying that foundation of who we are in Christ, what he has done for us. In verses 3 through 5, he has reminded us of the basis of our salvation. In verses 6 through 9, he told us of the joy of our salvation. And now he sort of brings it all into a culmination by lifting our eyes even higher and highlighting the greatness of our salvation, looking at the big picture. Where does this story of your salvation, of my salvation, fit into the rest of history and the plan of God? And we see that greatness of salvation demonstrated here in four ways, from four different vantage points. We have the vantage point of the Holy Spirit, the vantage point of the prophets, of the apostles, and of the angels in heaven. It's a pretty significant witness list, isn't it? And from their vantage points, we see four key aspects of our salvation that shows us just how great it really is. First of all, we see that this great salvation is directed by the Holy Spirit himself. 
we read in verse 11 of the Spirit of Christ, who we are told predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's not predicting as if he was just aware beforehand of something, you know, like you or I might predict the outcome of a March Madness game. Okay, That's not what's going on here. The, the idea here is that this is being directed by the Holy Spirit himself. That it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who is superintending everything that is mentioned here. From our calling and election before the foundation of the world, to the conviction and the revelation that brings us to repentance and faith, to the preservation that carries us through every moment of our lives here on earth, to the to the ultimate glorification when we see Jesus face to face. It is God through the Holy Spirit who is superintending every moment, every detail to that end. It begins with Him. It continues by Him. It culminates by Him. The message of salvation from the very beginning to the very end is a message that is directed and revealed and applied by the Holy Spirit. Now that tells us a couple things, a couple very important things that we always must understand. First of all, it tells us that our salvation is not from us, right? We've already seen that all the way up to this point. It tells us that this idea of salvation, this message of the cross, this, this scripture that we read, and, and this message of the gospel is not a story that is made up by man. It's not something that we invented. I heard a preacher just this week say that if every single one of us in this room had 10,000 years or more all on our own and all of us went all of our separate ways, we never would have invented a story or a message like this. It would have never occurred to us. This is not a book of human invention. This is not a message of human invention. This is all of God. Our salvation is God's idea. And so it's a big idea. It's significant. It is a great salvation. Now, the other thing that this tells us is that God is truly and intensely interested in the salvation of his people. There is nothing in God that has the mentality of, I'm just going to sit back and let you all figure it out if you can. Not only is salvation possible only in God, but God has indeed made it happen. It has been his plan from the beginning. It is something that only God can do, but it is something that God indeed has done. And God has directed all history to make it happen. The gospel is not a 21st century message, though it is a message for the 21st century. It is a message for every century. And the focus of that message the motivation for that message, the central feature of that message 
we are told, is the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The suffering of Christ and the glory that follows. You understand, don't you, that your salvation is not first and foremost about you? It is first and foremost about God and His glory. You understand that God's motivation for, for saving us is not because He needed us. Oh, I've created this kingdom, but now I don't know how to run it. I better save some people. No, that's... It is about the glory of God. Magnified in His mercy and in His grace. Displayed in the sufferings of Christ. And when it talks about the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it is talking about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. It is pointing us to the fact that He is the promised Savior and that He died in the place of His people to save them from their sin. That He is the one who rose from the grave, who has ascended to the Father, where He intercedes for us now and from where He will soon return to take us to be with Himself. That is the storyline of history. That is the theme of every generation, how God moves heaven and earth to save sinners and to restore His creation for His glory alone. This is a great salvation because it is detailed throughout history and directed throughout every generation by the Holy Spirit. Next, Building on that, we see that this great salvation is not only directed by the Holy Spirit, but is studied by the prophets. Studied by the prophets. We read in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. Who's this talking about? This is talking about the prophets of the Old Testament. This is talking about those who in Old Testament times were the messengers of God to the people of God. And the whole thrust of the Old Testament focuses on God delivering His people. The message of the Old Testament, the message of the prophets to God's people is a constant message where God is calling His people to return to Him where He is constantly delivering them. But all along, as that is focused on the people of Israel, God is also painting a picture and He is building an expectation for the perfect Savior who will come and deliver His people once for all and not just from an earthly kingdom or from an earthly nation, but from sin and from its eternal penalty. And though the prophets could not have understood every detail of the prophecies they communicated, because they were on the pre-fulfillment side, what Peter is telling us here is that they did understand that there was something big coming in the future, that there was a Messiah, there was a Savior who is to come, who will bring this salvation to its culmination. And they studied it diligently. They sought to learn as much as they could about it and to proclaim that message to God's people. And Peter is telling us 
that the salvation message, the gospel that we have received is the fulfillment of their study, of the ministry even of the prophets. And this story, this gospel proclamation, this promise of God's salvation was the source of joy and hope for the prophets. It was their, their source of hope in a sinful society. It was the joy that carried them through even though they suffered. It was the focus of their earnest study because they knew there was no greater message, there was no greater hope than that there is a Savior who will save His people from their sin. And if we would know true hope, if we would know true joy, then we do well to follow their example and center our lives and center our attention on this great salvation by God's magnificent grace. Now next, we see that not only was it the Spirit directing this great salvation, and not only was this great salvation the, the, the focus of the earnest study of the prophets, but we move on, we move forward in time and see next that this great salvation was preached by the apostles. I know the word apostle isn't mentioned in there, but remember that Peter is one of them. And he is writing here to a first century congregation. And he says in verse 12, it was revealed to them, that is to the prophets, that they were serving not themselves. In other words, this isn't going to be fulfilled in their lifetime. They're looking ahead. There are future generations who are going to learn from what the prophets say here. So they were serving you. How? In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. Well, who is that? It's the prophets. I mean, not the prophets. It was the apostles. That moves us into a New Testament context, and it speaks of the preaching and the teaching of the apostles that built on that foundation of the, of the prophets and brought into the context the sufferings of Christ and the glories and preached to the church as it was established the gospel. And it is that message that was preached not just by the apostles in the first century, but has carried on now from generation to generation. In other words, the message of the gospel is not a recent invention by a few zealous fanatics. The message of the gospel has been proclaimed from the very beginning. It is the message of salvation that has been revealed by God Himself through the Holy Spirit, communicated through the prophets and then through the apostles who have passed it on to all the other generations that follow. This, my friends, is why we preach the Bible. No man can improve on the message we find here. Many have tried. All have failed. If you're looking for a message of self-help that comes from pop psychology, you're going to miss the mark. If you're looking for a message with man at the center, you are going to miss the mark. It is not the gospel. It will not provide you hope. This is why we preach only the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. It is God's revelation to mankind of the greatest news of the only solution to man's deepest need. The 
Bible is breathed out by God Himself through the Holy Spirit. And as such, it is without error. It is authoritative over all of us, and it is sufficient for guiding us in a life of godliness and faithfulness and hope in this present world. What it says we need to know. And truly, there is no greater devotion, no higher pursuit than to seek the Lord in His Word. Because there is no greater joy. And there is nothing greater in our design, God's intention for us, than to know Him and to live for Him. That's modeled for us, by the way, in all of these examples. Directed by the Holy Spirit, such a great salvation. Studied by the prophets. Preached, proclaimed by the apostles. And third, fourthly, this great salvation is wondered at by the angels. So lest we think that our faith is just localized to the 21st century in Western North Carolina in our church family, this is even the focus of heaven. You say, well, the focus of heaven is Christ. Yes. The message of the gospel is celebrated even in heaven. Right? We're told that the angels celebrate when one, one lost soul comes to Christ. This is of intense interest even among the angels. Peter says at the end of verse 12 that these things are things into which angels long to look. Those whose life is before the throne of God look with amazement on the grace of God and the salvation of men. And though they are not themselves the recipients of that salvation, being already perfect, the amazing grace of God in our lives is a cause for their worship of Him. Because a, a whole new facet, a much a, a whole new a whole new perspective on the character of God is revealed in the fact that He would save sinners from their sin. And so we see that this message of salvation, this message of the new birth by the mercy of God, this message of eternal hope in Jesus Christ is the theme of heaven and earth. It is the storyline of history and the word of God. It was decreed by God the Father. It was carried out and accomplished by God the Son. It has been applied by the Holy Spirit. It is studied by the prophets, preached by the apostles, wondered at by the angels of heaven. And we brush it off like it's just old news. We gather on Sunday. We go through our morning routine on Sunday. Often with our events of Sunday afternoons on our minds, right? And then we forget all week long until we come back on Sunday. And then we sing with great joy. And we start to cycle over again. We are missing. We really are. 
If we are in Christ, beloved, we are a part of that story. That story that captivates the wonder of angels. That drove the study of the prophets. Yeah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, and so many more. This message that dominated the preaching of the apostles and has been thundered through the generations. This message that our spiritual forefathers gave their lives to proclaim. This message, this plan, this story, written by God himself for your good. Is there anything you can watch on TV this afternoon that even holds a candle to that? Is there any activity you can do this afternoon that compares? What should be in the forefront of our mind? This is a great salvation. There is no greater joy. There is no greater confidence in this life. There is no higher devotion. There is no higher pursuit than to experience this salvation by faith in Christ, to study it in the Word of God, to proclaim it to the world. Christians, do you agree with me? Okay. If you agree with me, then how are you going to respond to that today? How is that going to change the way you think and behave? And if you are not a Christian, and you're hearing this today, I want to joyfully invite you to turn away from the emptiness of this world. And from the vanity of your sin. I want you to come and enjoy this great salvation with us by faith in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. Come to Christ by faith. And you will know this joy, this great salvation. Well, that brings us now to verses 13 through 16, where building on that foundation now, on the basis of such a great salvation, we see the call of our salvation the call of our salvation. In verse 13, we see the word therefore. It's one of the most important words that we find in Scripture. Remember, it's the seemingly insignificant ones that often help us understand what Scripture is really saying. That word therefore, one commentator called it here, the hinge upon which the entire epistle turns. We've noted many times before this word is significant. It is a signal that what is about to be said is the result of what's already been said. It's a signal that the reasoning has now been established, and now the instruction will begin. So, beginning at verse 13, Peter explains how we ought to respond practically to what he has just said. How do we live according to this great salvation? Here and now. I get it. This paints, this, this colors how I think about heaven and, the, and the, the great by and by. But what does that have to do with me right now in the great here and now? 
How are we supposed to put this to use in our present circumstances? That is what Peter will spend the rest of the book talking about. In verses 13 through 16, he begins broadly, and he calls us to hope and to holiness. Hope and holiness. In the rest of chapter 1, he will, he will address our relationships with God and with His Word and with one another. And then he'll begin to get really practical, really down to earth in chapter 2. But here, in these verses, for our time today, we are seeing Peter's call, the call of our great salvation, the call to hope and holiness. And everything else will flow from that. So, in light of such a great salvation, then, we are called first to hope. Hope. We see this in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's one command in that verse with several parts describing it. That one command is this. Set your hope. We've already talked a lot about hope, and it's been presented to us as a fact, as a present reality. You have this hope in Christ. Therefore, set your hope. Live according to who you are already. Set your hope. This is presented to us now in terms of a response to the truth. The, to the truth we have seen. It's a call to hope that involves action, and it includes every aspect of our being. Set your hope fully. Mind, will, affections, and actions. It speaks of the focus of our lives, the orientation of our minds, the purpose of our lives, the direction of our lives, the driving force that governs everything we think, say, do, feel. The truth is, in every moment of our lives, we are setting our hope on something. Every moment. Our hope is set somewhere. And wherever we set our hope will determine how we think, how we feel, what we want, and what we do. The call of God in this text is on the basis of such a great salvation that He has given to us. The call is to set our hope in the right place. The place of steadfastness and joy. And so that brings us to consider the object of hope. Where are we told to place our hope? In what? Set your hope, Peter says, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow, there's a whole sermon, but I'll save that for those who forgot to change their clocks ahead. It's a whole sermon there. But what is the object of our hope? What is the object of of our hope. It is grace, he says. 
the gift of salvation that has come down from God through the Lord Jesus Christ, which will be completed in perfection and glory at the revelation of Christ. Once again, the object of our hope is not anything that can be found on this earth. Anything we put our hopes in in this world will fail us. It will disappoint. The object of our hope is nothing and no one less than Jesus Christ and the salvation and the eternal inheritance that He has given to us. So, setting our hope on this begins then with becoming a Christian, with accepting this gift of grace that's been offered to us, turning away from all other false hopes, repenting of sin, looking to Christ alone. And then this continues throughout our lives by Christ's dominance in every part of our life. It continues as we continue to look to Christ, as we continually seek to know Him, as we grow in our love for Him, and we conform more and more to His character. This joy, this hope is focused on Christ, and it grows as we grow in Him. And notice, there is no half-hearted effort at this. Peter says, set your hope fully on these things. There is no partial hope. There is no lazy effort. There is no hedging your bets. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put one foot over here, but just in case... You know what the Bible calls people who set their hope partially on Christ? Who give a lazy, half-hearted effort and who hedge their bets? Do you know what the Bible calls them? Lost. There is no in-between. So this is a call. If you're not a believer in Christ, if you have never come to faith in Christ, this is a call for you to come all the way to Christ. And Christians, this is a call to you to continue laying your life fully down at His feet. Setting your hope fully on Him. Not seeking to add anything to what He has already provided to you in Christ. Friends, do you know Christ? Have you come all the way to Christ? Christian, are you living all of your life, every aspect of your life, for His glory and with Him as your only hope? I know we have bad days. We don't do this perfectly. There are days we get discouraged. There are days where we, we get into fits of depression or even anger because we've, we've lost sight, right? Peter knows that too. That's why he's writing this to Christians. Look, I know you're going to struggle with it. We're not going to do it perfectly. But this is a call to you, Christian that we continually need to reset our hope fully on Christ. And He's given us every reason why that is exactly what we should do. And why there is no other worthy alternative. Now, what does that look like? Is there any practical instruction on how to do this? Well, yes, there is. And so Peter also explains in verse 13, the exercise of hope. 
We've seen the object. Now, how do we do it? What does it look like to set our minds on this grace? He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Those two phrases modify that command. They tell us how to set our, our hope fully on Christ. Preparing your minds for action. That has an image behind it. Um, the, the King James translate it, translates it, gird up your loins. In the 21st century, that doesn't mean much to us, right? But back in the first century, when everybody wore these robe-like things, right? They didn't have athletic pants in the first century. They didn't have yoga pants. They didn't have, you know, whatever. They didn't have athletic, what, all this stuff. So they were wearing these robes. When you talked about this idea, girding up the loins, it had the idea of pulling up all that extra material there, wrapping it around your waist, tying it so that it wasn't in the way, so that you could move quickly and freely without hindrance. That's the idea here. The bigger idea has the idea of removing any hindrances or obstacles or distractions. And Peter's not talking here about our wardrobe, he's talking about our minds. And when he applies it to our minds, he's calling us, as one commentator puts it, to discipline our thoughts, to live according to biblical priorities, to disentangle ourselves from the world's sinful hindrances, to conduct our lives righteously and godly in view of the future grace that accompanies Christ's return. It's a call to set our minds on what is most important. It is a call to remain focused. You know what focus is, right? You say, we don't live in a world of focus. Yes, we do. Just watch a teenager playing video games. Or just about anybody with a smartphone. We know how to focus. Our problem isn't that we don't know how to focus. Our problem is that we focus on the wrong things. And there are a hundred million things around us every day that are calling for our focus. And Peter's call is, don't be distracted by those things. The world's entertainments, the world's conveniences, the struggles of life in a sinful world. Do not be thrown off track by those things. Fix your minds on this grace. Prepare your minds for action. It is a battle. And the battle for the Christian life is a battle for the mind. It is a matter of influences. The things that we allow to influence us the most are the things that will fill our minds. And the things that fill our minds are the things that will direct our actions. You are becoming what you fill your mind with. That is why for the Christian, constant prayer, frequent study of the word, and committed fellowship with the saints is so important. The world and the evil one and your own sinful flesh are fighting hard to win your mind. There are ungodly influences all around us. And what Peter says here, he says with a sense of urgency, do not be negligent or lazy. Get your minds in the right place and take this seriously. That is why I have challenged you to read your Bible more than you watch the news. Because we are at war. And the same challenge can be issued, not just for the news, but with anything else you watch. 
and anything else we do. I'm not saying that we need to be reading our Bibles 10 hours a day. And I'm not saying that we need to be neglecting other necessary responsibilities in our lives. But that God and His Word and our relationship with Him ought to be not just the central focus, but the driving force. And we ought to be filling our minds with things that point our attention to Him and equip us to live godly here. That is why it matters what TV shows you watch. It matters what your eyes look at online. It matters what you read. It matters what music you listen to. It matters what recreation we enjoy. It matters what friends we have. Because it matters what influences our minds. What we fill our minds with influences everything else. So, believers, let's refuse to fill our minds with ungodly things. Let's refuse to fill our minds with worldly pleasures and worldly images and worldly ideas and worldly values. Let's fill our minds with God, with big thoughts of God. Let's fill our minds with His Word. Let's occupy our minds with prayer and with spiritual conversation, with Christ and His return at the center. I don't like theological controversies, but I have found great refreshment in recent months in talking with believers about different views of the end times. Not because we're arguing about the things that we can't know, but because our minds are being fixed on heaven. And we are honestly and earnestly looking forward to that day. I told somebody recently, we're going to sit down on our glorified golden rocking chairs and we're going to look back on history. We're going to say, oh, that's how that meant to play out. All for the glory of God. But in those conversations, those of you that have had them, do, your not, do not your hearts burn to experience what God has promised is coming. And doesn't that put everything else in this world back in its proper perspective? Prepare your minds for action, Peter says. And then he goes on and he also says we ought to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. It's a related thought, but here it has the idea of clarity of mind, discipline of heart, self-control. It means to remember that there is a spiritual war going on all around us and within our, within our own hearts. It means refusing to allow, allow ourselves to be under the control and un, under the dominating influence of anything but the Holy Spirit of God. It means being people of one focus and of one passion, that we would know Christ, that we would proclaim Christ, that we would live Christ, and that we would wait eagerly for His return. And that brings us to the culmination of hope, which we find in what Peter says, that this will all occur at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus is going to return? So 
some, some of you seem to. Do you believe that he could return at any moment? If we had those thoughts in our minds always, how would it change the way we live? Think about that. There are a lot of useless things that occupy our time that we would probably do away with, wouldn't we? There are some necessary things that we know we've probably been neglecting that we would all of a sudden take up, wouldn't we? That's Peter's call here. Fix your minds in the right place. Remember the big picture. Remember what Christ has done for you and who you are in Him. Remember what is coming. Remember what He has called you to. And now go do it. Beloved, Jesus is coming soon. And it can't be long. What a joy that day is going to be, right? Can you imagine? No, I can't. And neither can I. But it's fun to try. Whatever your circumstances are today, fix your mind there on what is coming, on what Christ has done for you and what he is going to do. Lift your hearts toward heaven. Fix your eyes on Christ. Let go of your preoccupation with the world. Let go of your attachment to the things of this earth. Don't get carried away by earthly anxieties because they will soon be over. Set your hope fully on Christ. Look for His return. Draw near to Him through prayer and the study of His Word. Encourage one another through fellowship and service together. And when Jesus returns, may He find us ready and watching, eagerly awaiting. Eagerly awaiting that blessed union. And in all that, we will have the proper perspective on this world below. We will be well equipped to live with hope and stability and joy here for His glory. All right. Once again, I had intended to go further in this passage, but we need to stop. This is the call to hope that is rooted in the hope that has been given to us in Christ. For the Christian, hope is not wishful thinking. It is a confident assurance that is built on and is connected to the testimony of God himself. And the substance of our hope is the eternal salvation that God has given to us by His grace. First part of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about being born again to a living hope. An eternal inheritance that's, that, that is guarded. And, and we are guarded. That there will be trials in this life, but that they are actually the source of joy. Because we know the outcome. And we will receive the outcome, the salvation of our souls. To the world, that sounds like utter foolishness. To the world, we look like idiots. And more and more. But this is our testimony. And it is not something to be ashamed of. This is God's gift to us. It is not something to be refused. 
This is the greatest news in all the world. It is not to be ignored. This is the work of God himself to save his people from their sin and to give them an eternal inheritance. This is the earnest study of the prophets. It is the passionate preaching of the apostles. It is the gospel legacy that they have passed on to us. It is the source of wonder and amazement even for the angels of heaven that God would set his mercy on us, that we would be brought to him in peace. Christian, is that at the forefront of your minds today? Are you setting your minds on this hope? Are you striving to know your God through the daily study of his word and through prayer? Are you spending your time amazed that God would uphold you in that trial, that God would set his love on you and save you from your sin, and that you are a child of the king destined to live in eternal glory in his presence? Are you ordering your life around the pursuit of God? Or have you let the world dictate your interests, your priorities, and your anxieties? Can you honestly say that you have set your hope fully on God and on His grace? Examine your hearts today. What part of your life is lacking? That part of your life is the part that we are being called. Set your hope for. God has given us by his grace everything we need to live steadfast, godly, joyful lives right here and right now. Nothing in this world compares to knowing God. Nothing. Nothing in this world compares to pursuing Christ. Nothing. Nothing in this world compares to eagerly longing for his return. Nothing. May this be the focus of our lives. May this be the priorities, priority of our efforts. And may this be the longing, the joyful longing of our hearts. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In verse 13, we've seen the call to hope. Starting in verse 14, we'll see... Lord willing, next time, the call to holiness. And consider what that pursuit of holiness looks like in a life that is centered on Christ alone. Let's pray.